Acts 22, 21, 17 to 22, 29. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, that, uh, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem, Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me 
to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are in this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but, not, but did not under, understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned them. I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, 
saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd now like to invite Pastor Jeff up to preach in our sermon today titled, How to Share Your Testimony. I promise there's a point to this. So I'm going to take turn holding up two signs. I have two signs here. This is the first sign. It's the letter D. So when I hold it up, my hope is that this side of the room, th these two sections of uh, pews, I want you guys, when I hold this up, to shout as loud as possible, D. All right? This is the second sign. It's a fence. When I hold this up, I want this side of the sanctuary to shout as loud as possible, fence, all right? Hopefully you guys can connect the two, right? My hope is that we're going to shout so loud that the people in Chinese ministry in the, in the lobby are going to think we're watching the NBA playoffs right now, all right? Are you ready? Okay. Nice. All right. Nicely done. They say defense wins championships. Right? There's the somewhat popular saying, the, uh, the best offense is a good defense. And so, in the past several chapters of Acts, we've seen Paul go on the offensive. Right? Last week we talked about how he was traveling through uh, these three missionary trips. He's been going around strengthening churches, proclaiming the gospel. But what we're going to see, as we saw, uh, as Janet read for us this really long passage this morning, is that that offensive is putting Paul on the defensive now as he heads to Jerusalem. We saw last week that he was determined to go to Jerusalem, no matter the cost, despite knowing the fact that as he would head there, he would be uh, imprisoned, he would suffer, he would face affliction and hardship. And this is what happens in our passage this morning. And so in chapter 22... We read about Paul's testimony, his story that he shares about his conversion and his call. But Paul actually calls it a defense. He says, Acts 22, verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. The, uh, the word there is apologia. It's where we kind of get the word apology or apologetics. 
So traditionally, an apology is, is a defense, right? And I know it's strange because of how we use it today. Right? If you're apologizing to someone and you start giving a defense, sorry to say, that's not an apology. No pun intended, right? But in Paul's case, it is, right? Paul's testimony, his story of his conversion, his call is a defense that he gives because he's been arrested. The city is stirred up. The people are out to get him. The Roman tribune is, you know, in the midst of all the chaos, is trying to figure out who this guy is and what he's done. In fact, today begins a series of chapters of several defense speeches that Paul is going to give over these next few chapters as he makes his way from speaking to the people, to speaking with the Jewish high priests and the Sanhedrin council, to speaking to Felix the governor, and then Festus his successor, and then Agrippa the king, as he kind of makes his way all the way through these people. This morning, I think what Luke is having us see in this account in Acts is that the defense of Paul is also a defense of the gospel. Defending Paul's reputation, his character against all these kind of unfounded and false rumors. It's it's not just important given the legal issues, right, because Paul is literally in chains, but it's also important given the legitimacy of what Paul has been called to do as a missionary to the Gentiles. And it's also important given the content, the legitimacy of the content of the gospel with which he preaches, that it's actually not a betrayal of Jewish roots, but actually the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, which are also for the whole world, including you and I. And so I invite you to follow along with me in your Bible app or your pew Bible. In our passage this morning, as we said, Paul is giving a defense. He gives a defense speech, as we see in chapter 22. But there's also things that he's doing here that is also a defense. And so taken together, as we kind of work our way through these two chapters, we're going to see how he gives a defense, his testimony. And what it does is it's going to do two things. One, it's going to clarify the gospel. And second, it's going to display the gospel. And so the first point, a defense that clarifies the gospel. Our passage picks up you know, right where we left off last week. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. It's been several years since Paul had last had the opportunity to give an update to the Jerusalem church of his missionary work. It's been a couple years. And so it's not like today where we have our ministry partners. They record a two-minute video. We can kind of see their face and kind of give an update. Uh, Maybe uh, it's somewhat similar to how some of our ministry partners, they, they weren't able to come back. Uh, to, the, to, the, to the U.S. because of COVID over these past few years. And so it's been a while since we've seen them, since we've heard about uh, what's happening. Anyways, Paul is, you know, arriving in Jerusalem, and he's sharing with the leaders of the Jerusalem church about all that God is doing among the Gentiles and through his ministry. And now the Jerusalem church leaders are also sharing about the large-scale success of Jewish missions. In verse 20, thousands among the Jews have believed in Jesus. But it's with this news that they're now also warning of the false rumors and the unfounded reputations and allegations that are kind of spreading about, about Paul. Verse 20 to 21, when they heard it, they glorified God, but they also said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous 
for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And so there's kind of three charges laid out here. People are kind of being told that Paul is teaching the Jewish people to abandon the Mosaic law, to abolish circumcision, and to abolish Jewish customs. And this is a serious, serious accusation. Even if none of these things are essential for salvation, which the Jerusalem Council kind of reaffirmed already in Acts 15, these are still things that are essential to the Jewish heritage, the Jewish people. If these are th- still things that identify them, that mark them out as a people group. The Mosaic law was given to the Jews at Mount Sinai after the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. The law was there, given to them to show these people how they were going to live as the people of God, how they were going to be as the people of God. Circumcision and these other Jewish customs, you know, again, not essential for salvation, but it was still significant for them as a people. And now there's these rumors, gossip, hearsay, these things that are spreading that Paul is saying to abandon and abolish the very things that identify these Jewish people. And so later on, as the crowd is stirred up and as riots start up, and they go uh, after people, they, they cry out, Men of Israel, help! This, this is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people, against the law, and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the Gentile. And they supposed, they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so the charge here is, again, similar. Paul is against the people. He's against the law. He's against this place, the temple. Here it's even more serious because now there's an unfounded allegation that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing in a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, into a section where that Gentile would have been forbidden. I think this was punishable by death. It was a serious accusation. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, as he's speaking with these church leaders, and they, they say this to him, because it's, you know, it's not so good that all these false things are, are being spread about. They say, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And so what we have is these, these four men, right? They're, it's probably they're about to cl- complete some sort of Nazarite vow. It's a vow where they had asked God to an, intervene in some way, and they promised God something in return. And during that period of that vow, they couldn't drink uh, alcohol. They couldn't cut their hair. They refrained from defiling themselves by touching a dead body. And so they're about to finish this period of this vow. And so now they're allowed to shave, right? They're allowed to cut their hair, and it also required the offering of sacrifices, which was an expense that had to be paid. And so these church leaders are, these Jewish church leaders are asking Paul to do three things. First, take these men, 
right? Meaning associate with them as they complete their vow. Be with them, join with them in part of the actions. Second, Paul should undergo his own rite of purification under the law. Right? It wasn't that Paul was taking the same Nazarite vow, but uh, he didn't need to go undergo purification because he was richly unclean in the same way that these men were. But Paul was defiled, quote-unquote, through having traveled through Gentile areas. And so these leaders are asking Paul to participate in his own sort of purification rites alongside these four men. And third, Paul is to front the cost, pay, pay the expenses for them. So these three things, association, participation, and offering. The hope is that these things would defend Paul against these false rumors and misleading reputations and uh, allegations and show that Paul is still loyal to his Jewish heritage. What it also does is it's serving to clarify the gospel. So you see, these, these church leaders weren't asking Gentile Christians to become Jews. The Jerusalem council, they already kind of decided that already. But now they're asking Paul to unequivocally show through his own life, through his action, that they're not asking Jewish Christians to be made Gentile Christians. They're not asking Jewish Christians to be, become Gentile Christians. In other words, they want to make it extremely clear that the gospel is for both these Jewish Christians as ethnic Jews as well as Gentile Christians as ethnic Gentiles. And in this passage, Paul is interacting with these Jewish leaders and these four men coming out of a vow. And he also interacts with a bunch of other people, these crowds, uh, these Jewish crowds, as well as this Roman tribune. And what we see is that depending on who he's interacting with, he's sort of leveraging his background to be a bridge to them. Right? We see how he speaks Hebrew when he makes his defense to the crowds. And it's when they hear him addressing them in their own language, they, they quiet down. Now, Paul wasn't just a Palestinian, regular Palestinian Jew. He, he po points out twice that he was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. And it was there uh, that in his upbringing that, that taught him Greek. His upbringing that allowed him to speak Greek to this tribune. Because the Roman tribune is probably not going to know Hebrew or Aramaic. Paul was bilingual, trilingual, multilingual, and he was also bicultural, too. He could move with ease between Jewish culture and Gentile culture, adapting to whoever he was speaking to. He could code switch, right, so that he could build a bridge to them. And I think this is beginning to help us understand what it means, what it looks like to build a bridge, to identify with the people that you're, you're trying to bridge to, right? It's not enough to simply think of them. It's not enough to simply try to include them or to accept them. To, to some extent, they have to feel like you're one of them. And with Paul, it turns out that later on we, we read at the end of the passage that, in fact, in, to, to a certain extent, he's more of a Roman citizen than the Roman tribune that is questioning him and kind of flogging him or about to flog him. It says there in the very end of our passage. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. 
Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen that he had bound him. And so this commander was probably one of the highest ranking officers in Jerusalem. He commanded like a thousand foot soldiers and a bunch of cavalrymen. And even though his status as a Roman commander in Jerusalem was higher than Paul, his status as a Roman citizen was actually socially inferior to Paul's, right? Because he bought his citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul was born with it. And so now the commander is afraid. He's like, uh-oh, you know, not only could he be accused of breaking the law by binding and torturing a Roman citizen, but he had abused one who actually had a higher status than he. Paul was a Gentile to the Gentiles when it made sense. And in this case, it did make sense because he's bound, he's in chains, he's being inter- interrogated. He's making a defense. There is no reason for Paul to bring up his Roman citizenship to the Jewish people earlier on. In fact, it probably would have made their case even stronger, their argument even stronger. Because then they would say, like, look, here's this guy, right? Here's Paul who is anti-law, anti-Jewish people, anti-Jewish customs. He's not one of us. Look at him flaunting his Roman citizenship that none of us have. But no, when Paul is speaking to the Jewish people, when he is sharing his story, when he is making his defense, he is establishing his credibility as one of them, as a Jew. This is his defense so that the thing which he proclaims, the gospel, is defended too. So that the gospel is clear that, hey, it's it's for you. It's in line with Judaism, with our Jewish heritage, our Jewish roots. It's in line with God's promises to Israel. So he says in verse uh, 3 of chapter 22, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul says he's a Jew. He not... Uh, not a Roman citizen. He doesn't mention that here, even though he is. He speaks to them in their own language, Hebrew. He, was, he, he points out, he's, you know, humble brags, I guess. I don't know. He was educated under Gamaliel, who is this famous Jewish teacher, you know, someone they respected. He followed the, the strict manner of the law. He identifies with the people that he's speaking to, saying, look, you're zealous for God, so am I. Paul is defending himself as he shares his testimony, as he shares his story against these false rumors and these unfounded allegations. So ultimately, ultimately he can make the point that true Judaism would see Jesus as the Messiah. And also that God's promise to Israel was also for all the world, all the nations, the Gentiles which is where he lands right before they begin to interrupt him, verse 21. And so as we recount, as Paul participates in these purification rites, these four men, as he shares a story, his own personal story of his conversion and calling, as he becomes a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles, he is making a defense against these false rumors, and in doing so also 
clarifying the gospel, what it is and really who is it for. Recently, I had an opportunity to, uh, to chat with one of our ministry partners overseas, and he was sharing about the lessons that he learned about what it really means to be a bridge for God. It meant needing to become more like the people, and in his case, the local people, in order to be a bridge to connect them to God. In part, that meant learning to speak the local language, but it also meant other things. It wasn't just language, right? Though he had the freedom, the privileges he shared afforded to him to travel a certain way, to fly with certain status, to stay in certain hotels, there are circumstances where he chose not to exercise those rights, giving up those rights when traveling with coworkers in order that he might, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you know, become weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might, might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And he shares that this was because that his co-workers weren't afforded the same privileges. Oftentimes when traveling for work, they would have to share a room together. Cost was an issue. They'd have to fly uh, in, you know, economy or whatever, right? This means that our ministry partner, too, would actually give up the comfort of a room to himself in order to bunk with his co-workers, to be with them to be like them in hopes that eventually they would see, and they did see him as one of them. And the prayer and the hope is that this would end up allowing for more conversations. Like, why, why would you give up all these good things to be like us? And hopefully it would serve as an opportunity to discuss about him being a bridge to connect them to God. I like how one author kind of described it. This is Tony Merida. He says this. It's a kind of a long quote, but you can follow along on the, on the PowerPoint. We too should be flexible when ministering to various cultures. Some cultures are more traditional, while others are more progressive. When outside your immediate sphere, you may find it necessary to learn to adapt the ways of another group for the sake of the gospel's spread. He points out, never compromise the gospel... And never participate in sin when you are attempting to reach people. But don't convey the impression that everyone must first be like you before they can take your invitation to accept Christ seriously. Some Christians struggle with this aspect of missionary learning, uh, living. But when the gospel is our main thing, when we find our identity in Christ rather than primarily, ultimately in an ethnic group, social class, or a particular culture, then we will be able to minister humbly and lovingly with Pauline flexibility. So as Paul makes his defense, as he shares his testimony, his story, we see how it clarifies the gospel. It does a second thing too. It, he gives a defense that displays the gospel. In speaking to the crowds, you know, these are the people who are trying to kill him, Paul explains to them the facts of his conversion. He says, look, I get it. I get where you're coming from. I was there. I was in your shoes. I understand your zeal. 
Like I was zealous for God too in, in that way. He says in verses 4 to 5, I persecuted this way to the death, uh, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is sharing his story of his history as a persecutor. And he's showing it that he did it really well. He had the backing of the Jewish leadership. He was their official agent. He was their designated hitter. He had letters from them. And not only that, he was expanding their actions against the followers of Jesus into further and further regions. He was effective. Persecution grew under his reign. Many years ago, it was Paul who was there when Stephen was stoned to death. Paul is saying these things, giving this defense, sharing his story to point out that his conversion was a result of the grace of Jesus. It was to display the power and the transforming power of the gospel. Right? Like how else, why else would Paul switch sides? Why else would Paul choose to be in the same position as a man who Paul earlier stood over and watched be killed? It doesn't make sense unless you see that Paul had encountered the risen Christ. And so this is the the main chunk of his defense, his story, his testimony. As I I was on my way in in, uh, drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And then I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Later on, Ananias says to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. As Paul shares his story, he's he's giving a defense. It's a defense that displays the gospel, the power of God. It points to the grace of Jesus, a grace that has touched Paul's own life, that has changed not just outward behavior and outward actions, but has has changed him from deep within. It's changed his heart. It has performed, the Holy Spirit has performed open heart surgery to give him a new heart with new desires and new values and a new way of looking at the world. It's changed him. We don't tend to think about sharing our testimony uh, or sharing our story as making a defense. Definitely not as being defensive. We don't want to be defensive. Sometimes we might think about 
sharing our testimony simply like this is my truth and, you know, you can do with it whatever you want, but this, I'm just going to share, like, my story, my side, right? But I think there's more to it than just that because we're not just sharing our truth. We're sharing, sharing about the truth, right? Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we're not looking to defend ourselves ultimately. We're looking to show that the gospel is, is reasonable. And not just reasonable and relatable, but true. And we can do that even when, especially when we are sharing our own stories. When we reflect on how the grace of God has touched our own lives, both past and present. Paul's story is mentioned three times in Acts. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And each time it's a little bit different, but the main pieces are still there. So making a defense, sharing our story, it's important. It's more than just memorizing, um, memorizing some apologetic arguments from some book that we read or some uh, TikTok video that we saw and regurgitating them word for word. Right? We, we ought to know who we're speaking to, who we're sharing with, it, because it matters. Otherwise, like, it's no better than we write the same cover letter and send it to completely different companies for completely different jobs. Right? I'm not going to write the same cover letter if I was applying for an engineer position and uh, a doctor position. Right? Even as Paul makes a defense, even as he shares, who he's addressing matters. Whether it's a Roman tribune, whether it's a Jewish crowd trying to kill him, or whether it's other folks. Right? It changes what he says, how he says it, and so on. Such is the same way for us. And part of that means remembering, reflecting even more about daily, weekly, more about how God's grace has touched us. Being so familiar with that story, our story of God's story coming into our story, that we're able to adapt it and share it and understand it and proclaim it. And really, the one thing that doesn't change, right, it's a defense that displays the gospel. It's a testimony that ultimately it testifies not to our own efforts, right? Our story is not really about us. It's about God coming into our lives, his grace transforming our lives and our hearts. And so likewise, I end with this question. When we make a defense, when we share our story, will others see more of us or will they see more of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your amazing grace, for the grace that we have seen that has touched Paul's life and transform him from someone who is persecuting your children, your, your followers, to someone who is ready and willing to suffer for the sake of your glory and your name. Help us too, God, to know our story in light of your story, God. Help us to be able to proclaim it with boldness and with confidence in a way that clarifies the gospel and displays the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.